Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Trigger warning. The following episode contains descriptions of graphic violence and adult language. Viewer discretion is advised. I'm Danielle. I'm Max. And each Wednesday, we crack open a bottle of wine and dive into some thrills, chills, and spills. This is Innocent Till Tipsy. So today we are going to cover the extremely controversial case of the West Memphis Three. Oh my gosh. I can't believe it's. I read that it's almost been 30 years, right? Holy Hannah. Isn't that crazy? 2023, it'd be 30 years. That's wild. Yes. This is an infamous case and it is a behemoth of a case. This is going to be a two-parter. I'm just telling you all right off here. Um, this is a case that is still constantly updating. A lot of people believe these three men were exonerated. They were not. We're going to get into the the deal that they took, um, why they're out of prison, what they're still fighting for as we go through this. Um, tomorrow, there's actually going to be a hearing on this case in West Memphis, and I should be there. So I'll try to give you all some updates. Um, but yeah, um, I found out about this case actually in the early 2000s. Obviously, I was too young in 1993 to, you know, no, I think I was like two years old. Um <laughs> But I found out about it from actually watching an interview with Johnny Depp. Really? Yeah. So he was one of the people, you know, this case, I mean, it happened in, I guess, a smaller part of the world. And then that HBO documentary, uh, Paradise Lost, picked it up. And honestly, Damien Eccles um, credits the documentary Paradise Lost to him having his life right now. Because without it, no one would have known that this case was going on outside of West Memphis, Arkansas. And um, with that, a bunch of celebrities um, took up arms along with, um, I mean, they were very fortunate in that. And along with, there was a movement started to free the West Memphis three. So um, in case you don't know, I mean, we're going to go through the whole thing. Um, But one spring night in 1993, three eight-year-old boys went out riding their bikes and were unfortunately never seen alive again. After the gruesome discovery of their bodies the very next afternoon, rumors of a satanic cult in West Memphis, Arkansas began to brew. Within days of the murder, Gary Gitchell, the chief inspector, told the public that they were investigating a considerable number of possibilities of what had happened to the boys, one of which included cult activity. Soon police turned to a probation officer in town, someone that they regarded as an expert on occult dealings in the area, and they had this probation officer make a list of those in the area that he thought might be involved in a crime like this. At the top of his list was 18-year-old Damien Eccles. Damien and his friends, Jesse Miss Kelly, who was 17 at the time, and Jason Baldwin, his best friend, who was just 16, would be arrested and put on trial for the ritual satanic killing of Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch, with barely any physical evidence linking them to the crime. Yeah, all based on witnesses who since recanted their statements And I think two pieces of physical evidence that we'll go through in part two. (sighs) Yeah. I can't imagine that it started with that guy's list. 
He's like, I, I think you made the list and that's how it started for them. I know what the police did have was the three's love of metal music, dressing in dark colors and Damien's interest in the modern pagan religion of Wicca, not Satanism. Right. Many have come to believe that this was a modern day witch hunt in the Bible belt of our country, while others have remained firm to this day that this was indeed a satanic cult killing. But before we dive into this now very infamous case, which has influenced a lot of pop culture, including current Stranger Things season, um, one of the characters, Eddie, was based on Damien Eccles. I didn't know that. I'm not that. F- I haven't finished it. I know. Sorry, guys. But yeah, no, oh. it's okay. And Satanic Panic is mentioned often. And yeah. the Duffer Brothers says that the West, Me- West Memphis Three was a big influence for them. So yeah. yeah. What do you have to drink today, Max? <laughs> so today I am drinking fittingly. I already had to pour a glass because it says literally on the bottle, it says you're supposed to aerate it 20 to 30 minutes. So I actually brought my aerator back. I'm hey. drinking Colt. Colt. Yes. No, I picked it for this case. I've been waiting, sitting on this one. Um, so I'm not even joking. I'm doing a um, Costco wine series. So the next, mm-hmm. I think, three or four bottles um, of wine are going to be from Costco. So you can hopefully get them at your Costco. Um, this was seriously, I think, thirty to forty dollars. So um, not overly expensive, but. Um, if you actually didn't get it at Costco, it's anywhere from like 80 to 130. I know. Oh man. Costco coming in clutch. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Right. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about it. It's a cab. It's a 100% cab. Um, 2019 from Napa. Um, here's my notes. So yeah, it's blackberry, blueberry, mocha, allspice, tobacco, and black licorice. I do like that. Um, there was another... Oh, and on the tasting notes from the bottle, it says plums and cedar. So I'm excited to taste it. I did aerate it. Um, we'll give it a little swirl. Woof, I don't swash, slosh it out over here. Um, but yeah, cold. Cold. I have the velvet down. Very smooth. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing different today. It's fine. Um, this is only $14 at your local Publix. Um, it's a Merlot, apparently, 2019. Um, it's a twist top. It's a twist top, so it's <laughs> going to be rough, I think. Um, it has no information further on the back. So, yeah, Washington State it was just there. Ex- no, not state. I was in D.C. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, things are hard today. Um, oh, yeah. my God, you're class. Yeah, I was trying to be, like, on theme here. So, yeah, I got my don't hex my vibe. I have had a few people. I just want to say it now because we're about to get into satanic panic and everything else. I've had a few people ask me if I'm a Satanist on TikTok and on you. I am not. I don't prescribe to any religion. I was raised evangelical Christian, which we're going to get into a little bit today. Um, but I like the aesthetic. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's a pretty cool cup. <laughs> it's a fun cup. Yeah. No. Um. This this wine is super super smooth. I actually would say this is in my top ten. Oh really? Um. It's not like overly bold. Like mm-hmm. this is great drinking wine. Like I would drink this. Um. I would feel a little bit <laughs> nervous about bringing a bottle of wine called Colt to a party, but um. Yeah. I would share this. Come visit. This is actually really good. I would drink cold. Um, I would bring it to a party and not even care. I'd be like, this is my spooky wine. I actually like this. It does go down really smoothly. It's um, more juicy than anything. 
um, I would recommend it to your local college student. Mm-hmm. Good recommendation. Mm-hmm. I would recommend this to your book club. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of book clubs, I have re- I've been researching this since January. Um, it's a big case, but also the Johnny Depp stuff happened. We kind of got sidetracked with that because we were actually going to do this episode like a minute ago. Yeah. So I did read the book Devil's Knot. This is by a journalist um, named Mara Leverett. Might be mispronouncing her last name. Um, I've watched all kinds of documentaries. Of course, when it comes to documentaries, we know we've talked about this before. They are trying to push a narrative. So it's always good to look at other things. I've read countless articles. Um, I've gone to both sides of the argument, looking at those who still believe that these boys are, which are actually few and far between. Um, Even the victims' um, parents, yeah, men now, even the victims' parents don't believe they did it anymore. Um, And which is interesting because if you do watch the Paradise Lost series, on HBO. You can watch it on um, HBO Max right now. Um, But you see the progression of how, well, obviously, like just devastated these families were and how mad, you know, they were at these three young men. And then um, as it goes on, how mad they are at the system. And it seems like to shift, um, unfortunately. We can't begin to discuss the case of the West Memphis Three without touching on satanic panic. Um, this happened in the 80s and the 90s and a little bit in the 70s. And um, it's something I was going to do an entire episode on. So I'm going to try to briefly touch on this. We might still do an episode if you want to hear more about this. It is truly fascinating I to do. me. Yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. That's, it's a crazy time. I could tell you something. Mm-hmm. We should do it. We should oh, totally do it. Listen, I'm about to go into a little bit of, I mean, I was raised evangelical Christian in the nineties. Like, yes. <laughs> um, big part of my life. So satanic like, panic is my life for you. Yeah. Yeah. I was raised assemblies of God. No, like, yes. <laughs> Um, satanic panic is the moral panic, um, is a, is a moral panic that consisted of over 12,000 unsubstantiated claims and cases of satanic ritual abuse, also known as SRAs. You heard me right. This was so prevalent that they had abbreviated the freaking term. Mm-hmm. Which began in the United States in the 1980s. And by the nineties, it had spread throughout the world. Yeah. And like yeah. And like when we discussed the Salem witch trials, this moral panic over Satanism led to a lot of mass hysteria at the time, a lot of co- condemnation and even wrongful convictions. And on the evangelical side of things, and I feel like I can talk about it because of the way I was raised, a lot of things were feared. Um, even things like Pokemon um, was seen as witchcraft. Yes, Dungeons and Dragons, they touch on that in Stranger Things this year. And even Harry Potter were all things that weren't necessarily allowed in the household. <laughs> and I'm not saying every household was the same, but um, these were definitely things that were fought on in, in my household. So it was also believed by certain sects of Christianity at the time. I don't want to say it's like a blanket, you know, um, but even it was culturally, you know, like most of our country are is of the Christian yeah. faith. Um, so there, there, there was the idea at the time that bands like the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, even Twisted Sister had subliminal messages in their songs that if you played them backwards, you would hear uh, these messages of yeah. twisting, you know, our youth's mind for Satan. Um, 
Kiss was also known by certain sectors of the church as the Knights in Satan's Service. That's what they believe that that abbreviation. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. There was a rumor at the time that Stevie Nicks was a witch and you better not listen to her because, yep, she's a witch. Um, she actually played into this rumor recently um, in American Horror Story. Yeah, Coven. Like she was in horror. Yeah. Yep. Her, yes. Where That's she portrayed a witch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> ACDC, they thought that acronym actually stood for Antichrist Devil's Child. And some believe it also stood for the very evil bisexuality. Um, yes. <laughs> I'm so lost because I don't get it. What? Did yeah, I guess because like AC, DC, like you'll go with like whatever. Like, I don't know. I don't know the, th- the thought process. Or it could stand for like electric current stuff. Right? Yeah. Isn't oh, that- yeah. Well, I think I mean, <laughs> it actually stands for something normal. I'm pretty yeah, sure. Like, the- <laughs> I didn't look at what their actual meanings were. But yes, oh, gosh. <laughs> at the time, there was album burning. So you throw an album, a secular album into the fire and you'll hear the sounds of screaming, you know, escaping from the album. Burn the witch, call out Satan. Now, yeah. this sounds crazy, but... The devil was working through music. This was confirmed by serial killer Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. the Night Stalker. He claimed that the song Night Prowler by ACDC inspired him to sneak into people's houses for the purpose of murder. And famously, Charles Manson was inspired by the Beatles' Helter Skelter. The exorcist at the time, um, evangelist Billy Graham, said the film itself was possessed. People were passing out in the theater aisles. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> fleeing the theater. And by the way, speaking from my own personal experience, my family minister in the early 2010s. So this is like much later. Not that long ago. Yeah. No, himself said that horror films actually contained evil spirits in them. And for a while, my adult self was not allowed to watch horror movies in my mother's house, her her house, her rules, right? Because of that sermon. And it really sucked, <laughs> really sucked Pastor Knowles, because that's number one, all I watched, but it was also during Halloween season that year. And that was the year that The Walking Dead was released on Halloween night. So it was freaking rude, man. But... <laughs> There, what's funny is later in life, there was a hot minute where my mom was like the biggest Walking Dead fan out of like all of our family. So it's like really funny how. And also my mother who forbade us from reading Harry Potter, like back in the yeah. day, she ended up um, teaching elementary school much later in life and used to host Harry Potter days and read all the <laughs> books to the kids. So, ah, oh, satanic. Yes. Yes. Um, so at the time too, there was a lot of wrongful convictions happening that were supposedly committed by satanic cults. So there was a book that was released in Canada called Michelle Remembers. Now this was about a child's repressed memories of satanic ritual abuse, also known as the SRA. Um, and this actually, this book started like a widespread fear of this child sexual abuse happening in satanic cults. And it actually led to the very famous McMartin child abuse scandal where these poor people were accused. And of course we want to take children's allegations very seriously. Um, but they were accused for years of um, doing these satanic rituals, sexually molesting these children. It was like a whole, yes, it was horrifying. It was like a daycare. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. yeah. And it, it was um, at the time, one of the um, 
for almost a decade, it mesmerized the United States like this trial. And for almost a decade, these people were thought to be guilty of this of these horrible crimes, and it didn't happen at all. So on a side yeah. note, when you look at that now, like with hindsight, mm-hmm. those kids are testifying or like not testifying. Those kids' statements were like that they were getting like flushed down the toilet to go like. Yeah. And picked up by helicopters, picked up by helicopters and then returned back by the time their parents picked them up. Yeah. And the things they went, yeah, it like made no sense looking back on it, but inside of that, I guess that's what you're getting at is like satanic panic in this framework. You're like, yes, Satan, Satan's like doing all these things. Yes. And then you would come to find out later too, that Michelle remembers ended up being totally debunked. It didn't even happen. The girl, Yes, the girl that made all these accusations of her being like kidnapped by the satanic cult over these 80 days, all 80 days, she'd had perfect attendance at her school. Yeah. So it was absolutely wild. There were police convection, literal police conventions at the time on how to spot a satanic cult in your community. There was training videos. And in fact, as late as 1991, the FBI had such interest in bizarre cults and human sacrifice. They undertook a search for how widespread it was in the United States. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I get why like small groups are alarming, like whether it's like the terrorist sect or Satanist. Like I get why you'd be like, we got to know what's going on in these small groups. But in that framework, it just like spread. Like, yeah, yeah, clearly. Mm -hmm. And there was also an evangelist at the time named Mike Warnke, Warnke, excuse me, who claimed to have been a high priest of Satan until he was saved and became a Christian comedian. He wrote books, book tours, became a Christian celebrity off the back of this past life in Satanism, where he talked about presiding over orgies, drugs, ritual kidnapping, and rape of others. He'd been making these claims since the early 70s and wasn't found out to be a liar until the Christian magazine, Cornerstone Magazine, launched an investigation into him in 1991. So for almost 30 years, he's talking about this, right? Christian if he's joking about orgies <laughs> that he presided over. He's just kidding, but not. He presided over. I'm like, okay, but you're still kind of a bad guy, no matter if Jesus saved you or not. Sorry, not sorry. Or whatever. <laughs> oh my God. But he was never, ever involved in the Church of Satan. The entire thing was a lie. And the moral panic of Satanism seems to be making a comeback today, sadly. Um, when the Astro World tragedy happened, that concert for Travis Scott, 
I noticed many young people in the comment sections of TikToks and YouTube videos that showed what the crowd was going through, saying that you could watch Travis Scott sacrificing those in the crowd to Satan. In fact, as I wrote the script the other night, someone had attempted to burn down the Satanic Temple in Salem, Massachusetts. They were wearing a shirt that had God across it, and the temple at the time was occupied. It's actually like a bed and breakfast. So, yeah, thankfully, everyone is safe. The man that tried to burn it down, I don't know if he's still in custody, but the time I wrote the script, he remained in custody on the following charges. Arson of a dwelling, destruction of a place of worship, and a civil rights violation. What's interesting to me concerning this... Yeah, like, don't do that. Oh, yeah. What's interesting to me concerning... This crime is that, well, I shouldn't quote it, but this crime is that um, the Satanic Temple is not the Church of Satan. Those are two separate entities. And I feel like he probably was trying to think of the church. Whoops, wrong place. Yeah. So Mm. the Church of Satan was started by the infamous Anton um, LaVey. And he he is like the face that's known for Satanism. Mm -hmm. Um, The Satanic Temple and the Church of Satan are both opposing sides. Neither church um, believes in an actual entity known as Lucifer or Satan. Um, The church of Satan is actually opposed to what the um, satanic temple does. And the satanic temple sees the church of Satan as inoperable and irrelevant. They put on their website, which I thought was hilarious. (laughs) The um, satanic temple is active in publicly confronting hate groups. They fought for the abolition of corporal punishment in public schools, which is still going on by the way. Um, Yep. Applied for equal representation when religious installations are placed on public property. They've done that when people have put the Ten Commandments up on a a courtyard. They've been like, oh, well, we'll put the Statue of Baphomet up. It leads to a lot of uproar. But they're like... If one, if one religion can do it, why can't we? Um, they provided um, religious exemption and legal protection against laws that unsci- unscientifically restrict women's reproductive autonomy. I'm, I'm reading off their website right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- that's why we saw a lot of young women actually sa- telling people to join the church of Satan or the, the, excuse me, the satanic temple because it's against their religious, um, you know, rights to not be able to get an abortion. Yes. Um, And they say that they've exposed harmful pseudoscience um, practitioners and mental health care as well. They organize after school clubs um, (laughs) and a a lot of other things. And their tenants actually don't believe in what a lot of satanic panic was freaking out about at the time. In fact, their tenant number nine says, do not harm little children. And number 10 says, do not harm non-human animals unless you are attacked or for your own food. So literally I could do an entire series on satanic panic and how irrelevant and harmful um, it is. And it's led to so much wrongful imprisonment, a lot of fear that we just don't need. Um, I just wish we humans would do our best to look beyond what we see, you know, and like kind of yeah. try to educate ourselves instead of freaking out. Um, well, joining anytime soon. Don't get me wrong here, but like they seem to have like some good structure. I don't mm-hmm. know. Like they have, they've got like, I don't know. They're organized. That makes sense. All of those things, like live in peace, let others live in peace. Like, yeah. 
Yeah. So now I'm not saying any of this to shame anyone's faith. Obviously, I was brought up <laughs> in this very like faith that I was just talking about. But I am trying to tell you what was kind of fueling the narrative when it came to the discovery of the bodies of Christopher Byer, Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch. So... And Wicca is totally separate from both of those, by the totally way. Totally separate. It's not even the same. It's not even in the same like, realm. Yeah. 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 So. And I don't know that much about it. So this mm-hmm. is totally speaking from an ignorant place. Internet. Um, but Wicca is like very, very peaceful, isn't it? Yes. It's very peaceful. Right. They believe in a goddess. Nature. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Nature and like, I don't know, being one with like the universe. And yeah. So. And also, just by the way, I always found this interesting. Everyone thinks like the pentagram is evil. It's the upside down pentagram you're thinking of that's supposedly like the evil symbol. Um, The right side up doesn't have anything negative about it. Um, So it's is that still called a pentagram? Yes, I I think it's a pentacle when it's upside down. I might be wrong on that one. I haven't really looked too much at the upside down one, but for a time I I did research Wicca. And so back in like when I was 20. And so I do know a little bit about that religion. (laughs) Um, Getting a geometry lesson lesson. we're like, name the shape. (laughs) We need to have experts. Oh my God. So Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch, all three were second graders at Weaver Elementary School. They were Cub Scouts and all had earned the rank of Wolf. All of them are eight years old. Now, Michael Moore wore his Cub Scout uniform even when he wasn't at meetings. Oh, I know. (laughs) He was considered the leader of the three, and he also had a nine-year-old sister named Dawn. Stevie Branch taught himself karate moves because he wanted to be like the Teenage Ninja Turtles. And he was an honor student. He had a four-year-old sister named Amanda. And Christopher Byers was a hyperactive kid who was extremely curious. <laughs> he was nicknamed Worm because he liked to wiggle so much and he loved to swim. He had a stepbrother named Sean who was 13 at the time. According to Christopher's mother, Melissa Byers, she said this. He still believed in the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. He liked to play in the dirt with trucks and he liked to color. This quote was given on May the 7th, just a day after Chris's body was found. The night of May 5th, 1993, was a full moon. The first person to report that their child was missing was stepfather John Mark Byers at 8 p.m. He said he'd last seen Christopher at 5.30 when he'd been, quote-unquote, cleaning the yard. After taking Byers' report, that same officer would be dispatched to a fast food chain where reportedly a bleeding African-American man had entered. This is the Bojangles. She took the manager's statement of Bojangles of the incident through the drive-through window at 841. The manager, um, the Bojangles that they were doing this interview at is located at the edge of Robin Hood Hills Woods, just a mile away from where the boys' bodies would be found the following day. Mm. The manager described the unidentified male as wearing a white cap, black pants, blue shirt, and his feet were muddy. He also said that he appeared mentally disoriented. He had left by the time that the officer arrived, but according to employees, the woman's restroom in the woman woman's restroom where the man had gone into, they discovered blood and fecal matter smeared on the bathroom walls. So and by not mental health issues. Yes. And he had blood on him. Yeah. 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 
By 9.01 after taking the report, without even entering the restaurant, the officer drove away. He just goes through the drive-thru. He's like, hey, what'd you see? Uh, and I'll have a side of fries. Like, he just casually. Yep, he just, she's just like, yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it's if there's something that happened in their bathroom. Why wouldn't he go in and, like, take that well, into his report? Bloody. Like, I... Yeah. I I don't know, man. And I do understand it's the early 90s. We still weren't that scared. I mean, when did Adam Walsh happen? And I feel like that's when our country kind of, that was the early 90s. So like that's when yeah. we really kind of started freaking out about these like kind of kidnappings of the youths. But like, I don't know. It's weird. It's very weird. Um, the next day, two officers would be dispatched to the restaurant to gather scrapings of blood, but these scrapings were never sent to a cl- crime lab to be tested, and they were later reported lost. The uh-huh. Bojangles man has never been identified. Now, the prosecuting attorney That's for the security cameras, anyways, uh, yeah. before, yeah. yeah, wouldn't be great, anyways. But That's yeah. nuts. Yeah. So the prosecuting attorney for the West Memphis three case, John Fogelman, who's going to come up an awful lot. So remember that name would later say in court concerning the Bojangles man theory that it was a complete absurdity, quote unquote, to think that criminals who took pains to hide bodies, clothing and bicycles would immediately thereafter go into a public place all covered in blood. Nope, absolutely not. That's not insane. To think that that could happen. Right? Yeah. Right? So I guess beyond a reasonable doubt doesn't well, matter to John Fogelman. We were talking about where the kid, um, the guy murders his teacher and takes her outside, right? Yeah. And he's yeah. just casually walking around town. Like, yep. no, criminals, just because they hide their, hide their actual crime doesn't mean they're going to, like, be in hiding forever. Yeah. No. So... Back to the night of May 5th. By 924, the same officer was responding to a second call about a missing eight-year-old. This time, it was the mother of Michael Moore calling to report that she hadn't seen her son since he rode off with Stevie Branch and Christopher Byers on his bicycle. Now, she'd sent her daughter out to look for him. However, she hadn't been able to find them. Another officer was called to the Catfish Island restaurant. Now, this is just several blocks away from where um, the house of Michael Moore is, excuse me. Um, And Pam Hobbs, the mother, and it was where Pam Hobbs, the mother of Stevie Branch worked. So according to Pamela Hobbs, 2009 statement, because police, for whatever reason, didn't really focus on the parents at all in 1999, 2009. So decades later. Yeah. Yeah. So according to her, she picked her son Stevie up from school and they arrived home about 3 p.m. that day. Now, the whole way home, he kept repeatedly telling her how much he loved her. Stevie had just gotten a new bike from his grandfather because his bike had recently been stolen and he kept his bike in his room. So he was kind of like walking his bike out to go play. And Pamela was like, Stevie, where the heck are you going? Like, what do you think you're doing? And he's like, no, mom, I promise my homework's done. Like, don't worry. He showed it to her. So she puts that on the fridge and she's like, okay, I guess. By 3.15, Michael Moore showed up asking if Stevie could go ride bikes with him. Now, Pamela said that Stevie couldn't go. She was getting ready for work. She was also getting dinner ready as well. But the boys kept nagging for her to let them go play. So she finally allowed them with a threat and promise that if Stevie was not home by 4.30, he'd be grounded for two weeks. (laughs) So, yeah, they left at 325, she estimates, for Michael's house. Uh, 
Now, interestingly enough, Christopher Byers came by her house at about 3.30. So just a five-minute difference. Um, Asking where Michael and Stevie were. Pamela told him she was surprised that he hadn't just run into them because they just left. Christopher saw that Muppet Babies was on and asked if she, he could go join Amanda, Stevie's sister, in watching Muppet Babies. And Pamela was like, whatever. And according to Pamela, at about 4 p.m. when it was over, Christopher left like immediately after. Now, by 4.45, Stevie still wasn't home and Pamela had to go to work. So she went her entire shift not knowing that her son was missing. Her husband, Terry Hobbs, came by at 9 p.m. Now, this time frame is kind of disputed a little bit, somewhere mm-hmm. between 9 to 9.30 p.m., to pick her up um, at the end of her shift. He didn't say anything to Pam. He just went straight for a payphone. Now, Pam had two candies in her pocket that she was going to give both of her children, Stevie and Amanda. So she went out to the car to give it to them and saw that only Amanda was there. So she was like, where's Bubba? And Amanda said, we can't find him. So she found out from her daughter that her son was missing. Yeah, that's problematic. Yeah. According to Terry Hobbs, he'd been out looking for Stevie all night. But we'll come back to that statement. Yeah, I'm like episode. screaming inside. Like, how could you not like pull up, like slam on the brakes, run up and be like, he's missing. Like, how could you just be like, got to make a call? Yeah. And that was them reporting to the police that mm-hmm. the son and yeah. Yep. So that night continuing through to the next day, the community and law enforcement searched for the three cub scouts that had disappeared. But the bodies of Christopher, Stevie, and Michael were found almost by chance the afternoon of May 6, 1993. So a child's shoe was spotted by someone that was searching for them in a rain debt drenched ditch in the Robin Hood Hill woods. So these woods are now torn down, but they're located next to two extremely busy highways. Um, Younger children were sometimes cautioned about the Robin Hood woods as transients and drug addicts would often frequent there. The searcher who located the shoe in about two, two and a half feet of water in the ditch called the West Memphis Police Department and Mike Allen, this officer, meets out there. Now he reaches for the shoe and falls in. He feels as though his leg has been stuck on a log or something and he falls backwards. And when he fell, his leg came up and so did the body of eight-year-old Michael Moore. The bodies of Stevie Branch and Christopher were farther farther downstream together. All the boys were hogtied, but in a really weird way. So it was left arm to left ankle and right arm to right ankle. And it was done by using their own shoelaces. They were found naked. Their clothes were pinned down, though, in the water by using sticks. Oh. Yeah. That's that purposeful. Yeah, means purposeful and that it wasn't just a, like, crime that happened and then the perpetrator ran. It was like they stuck around and did this after. That's what has a lot of people thinking it wasn't, like, a transient because it's like, no, they must have known. And it wasn't the West Memphis Three Boys because... The, someone that did it, they didn't want these boys to be found. Yeah. So yeah. it would make sense that it was someone that the boys knew, not just some random, you know, attack. Um, two of the sets of clothing were found inside out, but the pants were buttoned and zippered up. 
they undress them and and put them inside out and then I like, guess, or like they ripped them off and then just buttoned and zippered, or did they just mm -hmm. rip them off and it not, you know, unzip and but it's weird. Um, there were five socks and two pairs of underwear that were never found, so there were missing items of clothing. Even after they drained the ditch, they still didn't find those items of clothing. Now, the boys' bikes were found 30 yards away, also submerged in water, so someone went through a lot of trouble, yeah. Yeah. Um, there was no blood at the scene, which has really boggled a lot of people's minds and has a lot of people with a the theory that maybe the boys were not killed there. Um, but then again, I mean, but the in water. Um, so that's hard as well, because I mean, if you know the Amber Hagerman case, who we have Amber alerts for her body was found in a water ditched as well. And there wasn't a lot of evidence like DNA yeah. physical evidence left, unfortunately. Um, and anyways, um, the boys were beaten. A portion of Stevie's face looked as though it had been bit. Now the way the boys were found naked and tied seemed to suggest a sexual element to the crime. However, no definitive evidence of sexual assault has ever been found, but Christopher F Byers seemed to bear the brunt of the attack his scrotum was gone, looking at the time as though he'd been castrated and his penis was skin. Now, at the time and during the trial, it was believed that this was done by the murderer using a serrated blade. But now the defense especially is arguing that these injuries could have been sustained post-mortem by animals in the water and the woods. However, I feel like this is one of those questions concerning this case that we'll never fully know the answer to. That's the defense's explanation? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's really pushed now. And so it's hard to know if it's just the defense, to be honest, like the narrative on this case is now so because everyone wanted obviously to get Damien off of death row. That was like the main concern. So I do feel like the narrative on this case is starting to kind of get mixed in and truth and fact is starting to kind of get intermingled a little bit, unfortunately. Sure. Unfortunately, evidence in this case wasn't well-preserved at all. Now, the body of Michael Moore, the first of the boys to be found, um, was discovered at about 1.45 p.m. and removed from the water. The county coroner would not be called until 3.20 p.m., almost two hours later. They the didn't boys, even call them? That's crazy. Because you're supposed to. It legally, when you find a dead body, you are legally, That's like, right. law enforcement, yeah. call the coroner. Yeah. Um, it's so not your, like, not, I don't know. Jurisdiction's probably not the right word, it's but it's not like your, not yours now it's mm -hmm. a and now it's the coroner's duties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the boys would not be pronounced dead until 4 PM. The water the boys had been found in was 60 degrees Fahrenheit. However, it was about 80 degrees or 85, excuse me, degrees that day. So the boys had been sitting in the heat for almost two hours. Their bodies were attracting flies and other insects. Larva had already started forming in the boys' eyes and nostrils. Oh, no. Their body yeah, totally messes with all of the evidence. Their bodies deteriorating and all that. Yeah. Yeah. All from the Arkansas heat. Yep. Yeah. Um, and it's destroying valuable evidence. Um, the water they had been found in was drained, as I said, but nothing of notable evidence was found, not even a possible murder weapon. Now, Chris Byers' cause of death was ruled for multiple injuries, while Stevie and Michael died of multiple injuries with drowning, according to their autopsy reports. So, 
I know mm-hmm. it's everything. Does that mean they think they were still alive when they were submerged then? That's what I'm also drowning. To be honest with you, after looking at all like the different reports, looking at their autopsy reports, looking at what people have speculated, it's hard because in their autopsy reports too, it talks about the lividity. And I saw the lividity, you know, that's where your blood pools pools when you die. But yeah. So it means like if I died right now, my, it would be in my butt, you know, like all of the, my blood would start to pool kind of downward. Right. So the boy's lividity was on their backside, but they were found face down in the muddied water. They drug them out and let them sit there for two hours. Well, I don't know. Cause that doesn't happen. That happens like right after you're, you're dead. So I, yeah. I don't, I don't think it like transfers. It's the mm-hmm. thing. I know. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that's I a good know. point. Yeah. Valid. So there, that has led a lot of people too to think that maybe they were killed elsewhere and then drop dumped there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and if honestly, if they hadn't found that floating shoe, I don't, I don't think they would have found the boys. But awful. a day after the boys were found, their classmate Aaron Hutchison, who's going to come up again, so remember that name. He's also eight years old. Would tell officers that he saw his friend Michael Moore talking to an African American man in a maroon car. Claiming the man told Michael his mother had asked him to bring him home and Michael got in the car and drove off with him. Now, he said this happened after school. And according to Aaron, the man was tall, had yellow teeth and wore a shirt with graphic writing on it. Now, this seems super specific and like it fits with the Bojangles theory until you realize that Pamela Hobbs saw Michael after school that day. And there was also no reason for Michael Moore to ever be picked up from school because he lived right next door to the schoolhouse. So was this a lie? Like, was this child just simply confused or did he have the timing mixed up for when that happened? CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Or let me throw like another one in there. This is totally, maybe you can totally disprove this, but I was also listening to another podcast that covers missing people. And there was a case of a girl who um, comes home. She comes home at some point with like a suitcase of Barbies. And they're like, where'd you get that? She's like, oh, friend, an old lady gave it to me or something like that. And long story short is she goes missing, but in that case, there was like, yeah, this stranger had had contact with the kid. The kid still goes home and is like, oh, I'm going to go play with my friend because they know that they're not supposed to be playing with this adult and leaves and goes to like, because the adult has promised something. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't totally count it out that like, hey, that kid's wrong. The mom saw him after school. Like, I don't know. Adults like can lure kids like, hey, why don't you tell your mom you're going to go play with your friends? And grab your bike. We'll go get ice cream or like, it's so manipulative. Yeah. Yeah. And what's unfortunate, you can't disprove it. No. And what's unfortunate though, is at the time the police kind of dismissed Aaron's account. Yeah. And what's crazy is later 
they took his second account quite seriously, but we'll dive into that in a minute here. Um, and oddly enough, the West Memphis police, as I said earlier, they weren't too focused on any of the boys' family. Um, in particular, one relative, a stepfather, wouldn't be questioned by police concerning this incident until 2007. And this is only after his DNA was found on surviving evidence. Hobbs, right? Yep, Hobbs. Yeah. But we'll be diving into him in part two. Ooh. I know. I know. If you guys don't know about this, you have to stick around for part two because it's, it's insane. It's wild. As I said earlier, in the days following the discovery of the boys' bodies, Chief Inspector Gary Gitchell said that they were investigating many possibilities, even those that could be cult or possibly gang-related, although he said he did have no evidence that could prove that either of these things had occurred. Now, bringing it back to Satanic Panic, at the time, the police department contacted Jerry Driver. He was a parole officer in the area who the West Memphis police often often asked about occult things and crimes that they thought appeared to be occult related. Um, they asked Jerry to put together a list of people on probation, as I said earlier, that they thought might've been involved in this crime. And Jerry drivers driver had a hard on for Damien Eccles, especially when it came to Satanism, even though Damien was a Wiccan. Was he now, a parole officer? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was Damien's parole officer. So, by the time Damien Eccles was brought into the police department for questioning uh, a few days after the boys' bodies were found, rumors of what had happened to the boys had already taken over the community. In fact, the day the boys were found in the Robin Hood Hills woods, John Mark Byers, um, one of the most outspoken parents and one of the stepfathers in this case, um, was talking to reporters already. He said that one of the boys had been hit above the eye. Another boy's jaw was injured and the assault on the third child had been quote unquote, even worse than that. Why does he know so much? Well, this is it. So this is information that wasn't disclosed by investigator Mitchell right. at all, but Byers said that he'd gotten it from other deputies. So that's somebody mm-hmm. knows something. Yeah. If the father, if that guy knows, Yes. What's worse is it became public knowledge that the case file was 93050666. Oh, no. Gitchell told reporters that it was strictly coincidental that how the case file system works was it's the year, the date, and then the number of cases they've had that year. And this one so happened to be the 666 case they had that year. Years later, we would find out one of the earliest reports of this case was actually initially labeled 93050555. So somebody. Oh, somebody was like, hey, it's got to be Satan. Yeah. So personally, I feel like at this yeah. point, we're setting up all these young men for failure. Well, they're, so, making, they're laying groundwork for it to be like very strong case. A very strong case. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which why I why a random number of the case would like have any influence on like, yep, it's a satanic case. Yeah. Even if that was the number, it doesn't mean it was a satanic case. I don't know. We were so superstitious at the time. I feel like that was like culturally, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But I'm Mm -hmm. saying like, it's ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Not at all. So Damien Eccles was born Michael Wayne Hutchison on December 11th, 1974. 
I would refer to Damien to this day as somewhat of a searcher, like someone I would describe that he's always looking for like the reason why we were put on this earth. He's always searching for a new religion. I mean, honestly, like he was, he was interested in Wicca and identified as Wiccan during this trial. I mean, then he was married in a Buddhist ceremony while he was in prison. And now like he still believes in magic. Like it's all, it's very, he's always searching. um, I feel like. And well, going through this kind of experience where, I mean, I'm just saying allegedly, cause it's obviously still, he's been, he hasn't been exonerated, but he's out. Right. Yeah. So he's still like experiencing this, but, um, you would probably be searching for why the hell is this happening to me? Like why, yeah. why universe? Yeah. Why so, did my name get on that list? Yeah. In this search, he actually explored Catholicism for a few years. And according to Damien, he was fascinated by Father Damien, a saint known as the Martyr of Charity. So that was when he changed his name for the saint. And then his last name of Eccles was for his adoptive stepfather. That was his last name. So at the time of the murders, Damien's girlfriend, Dominique Tear, was pregnant with his, who would be his only child, Seth, as of this point. Now, while Damien wasn't a whiz at school, he was still in ninth grade at the age of 17. He did do extremely well in English and was a master with words. Um, according to someone that had evaluated him, he, they said, quote, his use of language is a very high level, beautiful quality, although it is morbid in quality. Not wrong. Damien was a very troubled young man, and he would later drop out of school entirely. Now, more than a year before the murders, Damien had come to Jerry Driver, that parole officer's attention. Um, I wanted to read a little excerpt, a couple little excerpts from the book that I read, because I felt like she explained it better than I ever could. So the boy had come to Driver's attention more than a year before the murders, when a woman called the Marion police to report that he was threatening her daughter. Damien, a high school dropout who lived in the Marion's Lakeshore Estates trailer park, was 17 at the time. So this was before. Deanna Jane Holcomb was 15. Deanna's mother told police that her daughter had been dating Damien, but the two had ended their relationship earlier in the week. When police arrived at the Holcomb's house, Deanna reported that since she and Damien had broken up, he had been harassing her and one of her male friends. According to the police report, Deanna claimed that Eccles, 5'11", 160 pounds, brown eyes, dark hair, said he was going to kill the other boy and dump him in the front yard of their house and then come back and take care of her and burn the house down. The girl's mother told the officer that she was in fear of her daughter's life. Later, Driver would recall that the girl's family told him that Damien was, quote unquote, trying to get their daughter into black magic and this type of thing. I can see why you'd be scared as a parent, right? Like oh, the yeah. mom's scared of uh-huh. her daughter being around this guy. Yeah. He's making all these wild threats because he's he got dumped or like they broke up. A hundred percent. I a hundred percent. Damien was troubled. Yeah. Now, it says also, within a month of the first incident, Deanna's mother again called police, this time to report that her daughter had begun to see Damien again. An officer responded to the Holcomb's house, and while he was taking the woman's report, Deanna arrived home, accompanied by Damien. The officer reported Damien advised that he had just walked her home after Deanna had become sick at school, but Deanna's mother was furious. The officer warned Damien once again to stay away from Deanna. He wrote in his report that the girl's mother had said she was going to take her daughter to a psychiatrist. Now, this I can hear the mother like going off, like, I'm going to take you to the psychologist and they'll talk some sense into you. Like, you stay away from him. 
<laughs> it's so dramatic. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, honestly, yeah. even it's so dramatic to be like, and then I'll burn the house down. Like, it's like, I mean, it is, we've looked at a lot of teen killers to like take these things seriously because good God, but my God, when you're a teenager, everything feels so like you've got it. Oh, yeah. it's so intense. So yeah, it says the story of forbidden love might've ended there. But during a thunderstorm, six nights later, Deanna's mother called the police again, this time to report that Deanna had run away from home, presumably with Damien. Officers headed for the Lakeshore Estates, where they found the two teenagers, both partially nude from the waist down, in an uninhabited mobile home. Oh, Damien. I know. Damien's friend, Jason Baldwin, was with them. Ew, poor Seth has to, like, know this I don't know all of this about his parents. Oh my God. And poor Jason, like what was he in a, I hope he was in a different part of the mobile. I don't know. Whatever floats your boat. Anyways. No, I, <laughs> teenagers, man. Like, oh man. It was like, I mean, on, on another like terrible note, but remember the girls that were hooking up in the car and, um, yeah, and they're, yeah. And you're just in the car. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're talking oh, about like, in the car and someone's hooking up in the back. So Damien and Deanna acknowledged that they had planned to run away, but since neither Damien or Deanna owned a car or even drove one for that matter, they had sought refuge in a trailer to wait out the storm. Nothing was reported stolen, but police charged the pair nonetheless with burglary and sexual misconduct. So I had seen, it was funny. I'm glad I read this book because I'd seen he had had a juvenile charge of sexual misconduct. And that sounds so, I mean, that sounds like rape or something, you know what I mean? But then you hear it's like two teenagers who ran away and were just having sex in a trailer. And it's like, yeah, whatever. Okay. Um, so Damien and especially damning in this case, it does. Yeah. So Damien and Deanna were taken to the county jail and driver was notified, Jerry Driver. Um, someone from the juvenile office went to Eccles's trailer and asked to search Damien's room. Pam Eccles granted her permission and the juvenile officer walked out with notebooks containing Damien's writing and drawings. Pam said she was told they would be returned, but they never were. The notebooks, which included a poem above, and I'll read you the poem that he wrote. Holy men tell us life is a mystery. They embrace that concept happily. But some mysteries bite and bark and come to get you in the dark. A rain of shadows, a storm, a squall. Daylight retreats, night swallows all. If good is bright, if evil's gloom, high evil walls, the world entombs. Now come the end, the drear dark fall. That's really like great writing. (laughs) I can, he was like very talented. He's very talented, very morbid. Alan Poe. And you're like, oh, okay. Got it. Um, But also damning in this case, because all of his stuff has pentagrams on it and he's talking about death constantly. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, They were all of these, all of these items, the notebooks and the poem and everything were put on Damien's juvenile record. Now, Driver considered them evidence that the boy was veering dangerously towards the interest in the occult. Deputy Prosecutor Fogelman, so all these people already know each other, filed charges against Damien for the incident at the trailer. How do they charge him with sexual misconduct? I don't understand that charge because it's not... So I think it's because they've broken into a trailer. So I think it's like the equivalent of like... But what does that have to do with... Well, I think it's like because it's a public place, so it's like sexual misconduct. I don't know. Uh... 
It's someone's private trailer. Uh, no, I just, okay. Yeah, we'll let it go. I don't get it. I think it's... Yeah. <laughs> Drop in the comments and let me know <sighs> what's up with that. This affair actually began the satanic rumors that started swirling around Damien, even though he was a Wiccan. So young people actually in the area said that we're trying to get pregnant in order to sacrifice their firstborn to Satan, which I thought was like a weird thing to like get to, except for the fact that I had a kid in on my school bus when we were in high school and he was a very nice boy. And now he's like married with kids and like whatever else. But he was like obsessed with Marilyn Manson always had his dark hair his nails were long like mine are now with like black painted and we like the whole bus was like so rumor like there was a lot of rumors that like swirled around about him so i'm like no i can vibe that like if damien's got these the straight black hair he's always dressing in black painting his nails which would have been really taboo at the time and he's like stalking his ex-girlfriend and like whatever else i can see there being like a that and kind of sex and he's getting charges and yeah. mm-hmm. but you know yeah. what like also like kids that are kind of on the fringe whatever mm-hmm. even sure they're like a target for gossip and rumors they also sometimes start their rumors themselves because they want to be like extreme they're like yeah we were gonna ha- sacrifice our firstborn like no you weren't yeah. you never like we're gonna really do that like yeah just trying to get street cred i guess yes now it was reported that they did have a suicide pack together like a very unhealthy sure yeah but yes so while damien was hospitalized and beyond that because he was hospitalized several times for his mental health um issues Mm -hmm. jerry driver maintained an interest and concern in damien's um interest in the occult Damien's troubled at this point, right? And by July of 1992, his mother actually moves him to Aloha, Oregon, all right? And that was to actually be closer to his biological father. They kind of got back together for a stint, all right? So while they were there, Jerry Driver actually maintained an interest in him like 2,000 miles away. It seems like he was obsessed. Not your problem, my man. It's very strange. So he actually contacted an Oregon juvenile counselor with the following concerns. Um, he said that Damien and several others of his associates, associates at like, what, 18, anyways, are involved in a satanic cult. Um, that Damien and his girlfriend were both placed in psychiatric hospital. That Damien had threatened to kill his girlfriend's parents. And that Damien claims that he is a witch. Damien and his girlfriend are planning to have a child so that they could offer it as a sacrifice to Satan. And the authorities in Arkansas suspect that Damien's parents are involved in the satanic belief system. So the officer did visit the Eccles family and noted the following. He wrote that Damien's parents, Pam and Joe, said that they were having no problems with Damien at that point in time. And that Damien was not enrolled in school in school. But he was working full time at his father's gas station, earning about $5 an hour. And that Damien had really no interest in anything having to do with life. I feel like he was super depressed and he would later be diagnosed with severe depression. Um, now, Damien. Well, uprooted, you know. Yeah. Yeah. The country. Like, yeah. Um, the other thing is, I guess I it sounds at first like really frustrating for that officer to be like, hey, making a call, like, let this kid have a fresh start. But at the same time, if something would have happened, you'd be like, why didn't they just make one exactly. call to like, warn them? So, okay, 
we'll give you it but yeah i'll give you the benefit of the doubt because yeah maybe he was obsessed with this kid or maybe it was like he's actually doing his due diligence as an officer yeah. we rarely see that when it comes Someone to look me. after him out there yeah i mean like, these are some what, warning signs some red flags yeah yeah what if god forbid he did like a tax you know yeah then we'd yeah. be like why didn't he call so yeah um so uh, damien's response to these accusations um and this was noted um, by the counselor. He expressed considerable displeasure with Mr. Driver in making such such assertions. Damien did acknowledge a suicide pact that he and his girlfriend had made if authorities or his parents attempted to keep them apart. However, he indicates that following hospitalization, he no longer is interested in hurting himself or anyone else. Damien denies ever making threats of killing his girlfriend's parents. Damien acknowledges that he is a witch and indicates that it is his religious preference. He also distinguishes his religious beliefs from Satanism, indicating he believes in a series of gods and goddesses and that he sees this as his religious preference, which should not be of concern to the state authorities. Damien felt that my inquiries in this area were an intrusion into his privacy, and he declined to discuss the matters further. Don't blame him. So... Sure enough, though, soon after this event, Damien was not feeling well again, and his parents actually told the state that they were concerned he might not only hurt themselves or hurt himself, but possibly them. So officers came, took Damien, gave him some options, and they ended up taking him to a psych psychiatric ward, and he was on suicide watch for several days. There, he would insist that he was not going to kill himself, but he missed his girlfriend, Deanna, terribly, and also his best friend, Jason Baldwin. Within two days of being in the hospital, the hospital said that Damien was no longer a threat to himself or others, which, I mean, you can go back and forth on that. We see constantly they just don't have enough beds. You know, like, it's a very frustrating situation. So whether that, time too. Yeah, whether that was true or not, that's hard to say. But um, Damien said that he wished to return to Arkansas and his parents did not want him anymore. So the doctor deemed it was reasonable for him to go to Arkansas and try to be emancipated from his parents. Cause at that point in time, he was just like 17 years old. Mm -hmm. So Jerry driver was alerted that Damien was returning to the state, which makes sense. He's a parole officer. Um, he was however, hospitalized again in Arkansas and little rock. But after that, he soon began dating 16 year old Dominique Tier, So new girlfriend um, who lived in the same trailer park as him. So we've established Damien is a troubled youth and was rightly yeah. at that point in time on police's radar. Jason Baldwin was Damien's best friend. Both young men were not well off. In fact, Damien himself has referred to all three boys that would be convicted in this case as white trash. And imagines that if the p documentary Paradise Lost had not picked up the case, Damien would at least be dead by now because of his death row sentence. But Unlike Damien, Jason believed in God and believed in right or wrong. They were kind of polar opposites in that respect. Like Jason didn't see the need in searching kind of anywhere. And he also believed that religion was kind of a comfort for you if you're like on your deathbed. Um, but like Damien, he had already gotten into trouble with the law by the age of 12. Ow. Okay. So this is crazy to me. So 
this story, I don't know. So it was like this abandoned, from what it seems to me, it's like this abandoned tin building, okay? Right. And he was charged with breaking and entering into it. But this building was kind of a hive for kids. We had a place like this in the middle of the woods of nowhere that we all used to go and like party at. So I'm like, that's probably trespassing. (laughs) It's probably trespassing. I'm like, like, property. I'm like, I I didn't know as a child. I'm like, you can whatever so but this also he was charged not only with breaking and entering but also criminal mischief for busting windows and quote-unquote vintage vintage cars and equipment but this seems like normal teen boy behavior stupid teenage boy behavior 110 percent don't do that yes so fogelman was now a juvenile judge at this point. Everybody knows everyone, it seems. And he ordered Jason to pay $450 and placed Jason on probation. At first, apparently, they were going to try to get him to go to juvenile detention center, but his mother ended up trying to work that out. So, Well, when you go to juvie, honestly, sometimes kids that are on the fringe like take a turn for the worst because they're around kids mm-hmm. that are really, really troubled. So yeah. fair enough to be like, didn't he smash some windows? Like, yeah. pay a fine instead of going to another school or a juvie or whatever just to be totally transparent here he was also arrested or had a charge of burglary or something against him but it was for like a six dollar candy bar so sometimes judges also for kids or juvie judges are like we're gonna teach you not to do this you're getting charged yeah So um, he's now also on Jerry Driver's radar, too. So we love that for him. And he has his own probation officer now, Steve Jones, who's constantly accusing Jason of trying to put a cult together. He's like recruiting for a cult. I know. Uh, Okay. So I wanted to... Like, literally, he said that Jerry Driver, at one point in time, Jason... Yes, Jason would say that Jerry Driver and this other... Officer Steve Jones would have put together like a um, anti Jamie and Eccles campaign if they could have like it. They would they had such a issue with Damien, and I really do think it's too because he was the other of society. Like no one dressed like him, or I mean, Jason didn't even like dress like Damien did, and I just think it's ridiculous. Anyways, now the third person in this case, Jesse Miss Kelly. He had quite the reputation um, at 17 to be a fighter. He'd grown up in a really rough home. um, And his father, who he adored, um, had, quote unquote, bad times with alcohol. He would periodically lash out um, at Jesse and play punch him. But sometimes these punches would land him full across the room. So it wasn't like a play. not play. That's not all right. No. So... In school, Jesse also would act out and lash out like his father, but at other students, teachers described him as moody, disrespectful, impulsive, and almost immediately his school teachers labeled him as quote-unquote slow. Remember, this is the 90s. Mm -hmm. Um, He scored a 67 on an intelligence test, and the examiner reported that he was quote-unquote mildly mentally retarded. By the age of 11, he had only made it to third grade, and he would eventually drop out of school by age 16. Now, Jesse was not particularly friends with Jason or with Damien. In fact, his father reported that Jesse was actually scared of Damien and stayed away from him as much as he could. But he had known Jason Baldwin since sixth grade. Um, so this neighbor of Jesse, Vicki Hutchison. Sixth grade, but he would have been pretty old in sixth grade. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if he means like two would win. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so his neighbor, Jesse's neighbor, Vicki Hutchison, came to him one time and asked him if he knew Damien. And Jesse said, I told her I didn't really know. All I knowed was he was a weird person. Now, Vicky wanted to meet Damien and have Jesse introduce her. So he said he would. Vicky Hutchison was the mother of Aaron Hutchison, that classmate that we talked about earlier, right? Of Chris mm-hmm. and um, uh, Stevie and Michael. Um So she was actually undercover for police at the time, looking for information on Damien Eccles and his possible involvement in the boys' murders, acting as though she was interested in the occult. Now, I'm going to kind of glaze over her statement because she would recant it all in 2004. But it was too little too late. But yeah. So... She actually set out a recording device at one point to try to catch him. But when police listened to it back, it was muffled, which does make me wonder if she did that on purpose because we'll come to find out more stuff later. But she said in over the eight days of speaking with Damien and getting like a relation, not a romantic relationship going, but a relationship built on him with like being interested in his religion and everything. Mm -hmm. um, He took her to something called an SBAT, like a ceremony on May 19th. This was exactly two weeks to the day that the boys were murdered. She said when they arrived in the woods, there were about 10 other young people there with their faces and their arms painted black, having an orgy. That's her testimony that she recants? Yeah. Now she says she's offended and she asked Damien to take her back to the trailer park where she lives. Now, her son, Aaron, as we talked about earlier, he would also change his initial statement from where he saw Michael getting in that car with a stranger. That was a believable statement to actually witnessing the boy's murder by three men in a satanic ritual. Okay, that's a leap. That's a huge leap. Now, in 2004, when Vicky recanted, she had asked the state for immunity, which they would not provide. This is something the, the defense says proves that the state is still trying to hide things in this case. Um, But you could also argue it the other way that the state thinks she never lied at all. Um, Now, when Aaron was 18, he said publicly that the police, quote unquote, tricked him into making his statement. And I'm not going to go through his statement. You can find both of their statements verbatim online. Um, We can link it. It's part of my research. Um, I found especially the boy's statement Things were being fed to him by police. It's extremely disrespectful to the little boys that were murdered. Um, and it's wild. Like, the story's wild. They even talk about eating a cat and the boys throwing a cat's skull. Like, it's it's absolute insanity. Um, so. And if anything, we know about satanic panic from the other cases. Like, the like the process of actually interviewing children and having it, like interviewing them with integrity it it was not established at that point like the like they were leading children and children's minds are very imaginative and like very um the easy easily manipulated so like these statements that come from kids when they're being fed things and led like yeah they come up with some crazy shit so Mm -hmm. so vicky would say she actually met with jerry driver that parole officer before concocting this whole story and also met along with the Memphis police. And she said that members of the Memphis police force threatened to take away her son if she did not comply, according to her. Now, police chief Mike Allen, and yes, I believe if I'm not mistaken, that this is the same Mike Allen that fell in the body of Michael, 
responded by saying, and this is in 2004, his response, it appears that Vicki Hutchison is trying to get her 15 minutes of fame. I don't know anything about Vic- Vicky or her motives for over 11 years later coming out and lying about the events of 1993, but I can say this case gets more bizarre every day. I'll agree with him on that. It does get wilder yeah. every freaking day, but here's the sad thing. Vicky's statement was key in making sure that Damien, Jesse, and Jason went to prison for an extremely long time. And it would be one of the only two corroborating statements that would corroborate the confession of Jesse, Miss Kelly. So it was essential and it's unfortunate. So Jesse did not know that Vicky was attempting to set up Damien Eccles for the murders of the three boys found in the Robin Hood Hills. So on the morning of June 3rd, when his father showed up at his trailer, telling him that detective Michael Allen wanted to speak with him, would he have any problem with that? Jesse saw Mike Allen with his father and he answered no and left for the police station. Uh. Jesse Miss Kelly would be arrested that very day for three counts of capital murder along with Damien and Jason. After he had been questioned for over 12 hours, only part of his interrogation would be recorded. A few minutes where he discussed how the three of them had murdered the boys. 12 hours, not fully recorded. record a few, a little bit of it. A few minutes with a subject that they're interrogating that has an IQ of about 75. His reasoning level, according to experts, was the same as a child between the ages of six to seven years old. And he was virtually illiterate. Did he, he obviously didn't have an attorney or a parent. Present. No, no. Cause he thought it was fine. And his, his father, the police officer at the time they had, because he was underage, they had to get the father to sign off. And his father just signed it because they trusted the police. Cause yeah, you'd be like, well, he's doing his job. Like he didn't do mm-hmm. it. So yeah. Talk to him. Yeah. yeah. Jesse couldn't even get the times right. He couldn't get whether the boys had skipped school or not. Right. But don't worry. The police provided him with that information during their interrogation. In fact, the police were extremely helpful concerning the details of everything that happened to those little boys in the woods concerning the satanic rite that murdered them. This would lead many to later accuse them of misconduct, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I understand it's a tragedy that like these three boys have been murdered and you want to find it, find the killer killers like right away. Mm -hmm. But in doing like in doing the investigation the way they did and interrogating people the way they do like this is ob- obstructing justice like this is not justice no you're arresting just whoever you're like yeah they confess we got them like and it would lead to a lot of people being promoted that probably shouldn't have been promoted a lot of and that's the cd bit of everything is it's like they they got this into their head they had easy people to freaking railroad and they railroaded them and if the hbo documentary crew for paradise lost had not gotten a hold of it i don't think we'd still know about this case like that's how crazy it is um So we're at the end of what I'm going to do for today's episode. I feel like it's not a spoiler because this is real life. We know that Jason and Jesse were sentenced to life and Damien was on death row. They've been released. Next week, we're going to talk about that weird ass deal they had to make in order to save Damien's life. Why they're still fighting for their innocence because they have not been exonerated. It's something that still needs to be talked about. Tomorrow is on June 23rd. They're going to be having this hearing. Now, what the hearing 
hearing concerns, um, Damien, well, after they were all released, so the weird deal that they got, I'll kind of mention it a little bit right now. It's called an Alford plea. Yep. So what they had to do, and it's really fucked up, they had to say plead guilty to the crime while still maintaining their innocence. Mm-hmm. So all three men and all three of them had to do it together, which is the weirdest thing or not one of them could have gotten out of prison. And Jason didn't really want to do it, but Damien's time was ticking and it was running out for him. It's on weird that row. it's all three of them. The Alfred mm-hmm. plea is not that strange. Oh, really? That's kind of common. It's when they, they like want to make a deal. It's, it's kind of a win-win sometimes for both sides that you're like, it's not. <laughs> but it's how you strike a deal by saying like, you get to say that you didn't do it. So you get to maintain your innocence and we get to say that you're guilty deal. Because it says that the state had enough to prove their guilt, which also takes the burden off the state. So the state doesn't have to pay jack shit to them and releasing them out of prison. When we know the state fucked up hard on this case and probably owes them millions of dollars for 18 years behind bars. It's wild. Mm, yeah wild but um they just make that deal so they're like we don't have to do this dance you say you're not guilty we say you're guilty Mm -hmm. and at the time in a few months they probably would have been granted a retrial which would have been fine but damien's time on death row was running out it had already been pushed several times Mm -hmm. so they didn't want to take that like jason said i literally did it to save damien's life like that's the reason but they're still fighting for their innocence and they're they vowed to try to catch the people that that were behind this actual murder. So the boys are um, wanting evidence rerun. So DNA evidence retested in this case. So they're having a focus on the shoelaces that were used to tie um, the boys. Yes. So they want to test with something called an MVAC. Now prosecutor Keith Cressman has continued to deny he does not want the retesting of evidence. And he says that it's because the MVAC could damage the evidence for future retesting. But I can't find anything to back that up. In fact, all I can find is websites saying that the MVAC is actually a better method than swabbing is for collecting DNA evidence. So that's weird. All I know is that when people are wrong, and in this case, some people were very wrong. A lot of people don't want to admit their wrongdoing, but yes, even if this evidence is tested though, and it clears them, clearing the names of the West Memphis three is not a done deal because they took that Alfred p- plea. So they yeah, do they have admitted a- their guilt. They admitted their guilt. So there's a couple of options after including violence, filing an innocence claim. So we'll see kind of where it goes from here, but hopefully they, I, I like, it's like, Obviously, you should want to catch who really did this. So it's like, say, does this mean it's a closed or open case? It's closed. closed yeah. They're guilty. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's why everybody has to fight so hard in order to get DNA testing rerun because it's a closed case right now in the minds of so many because they're guilty. Right. right. So it, that's this is why wrongful convictions are so harmful, like so harmful. And this is why things like the Innocence Project are so Um, important because it's so hard once you go to prison it's so hard to get you out of prison and um, I feel like in it should be the way our country is supposed to be run is you're innocent until proven guilty but in certain cases like this one it seemed to be the other way around and it's unfortunate so this podcast is sponsored by better help I know for myself, since transitioning to a working from home environment, the importance of taking care of your own mental health. 
BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You'll be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Now, it's not a crisis line and it's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. The service is available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account anytime, day or night, to message your therapist. It's more affordable than traditional in-person therapy, and financial aid is available. You can visit their website and read other clients' testimonials that are posted daily. Visit BetterHelp.com ITT, that's Better H-E-L-P, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. And for listeners of Innocent Till Tipsy, you can go to their website and get an additional 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash ITT. That's betterhelp.com slash ITT. We'll be talking about other suspects, other possible suspects, a few other things. That's going to be kind other of theories. Yeah. There's other theories on this. Yeah. Oh, tons of other theories. And so we'll be getting more into that in next week's episode. But um, yeah, for right now, how was your wine, Max? Oh, my wine's too good. I love this wine. I didn't know I loved it, but I'm in love. So yeah, maybe I will bring a bottle of Colt to a party sometime. Yes. It's great. I actually really like mine too, even though it was super (laughs) super affordable, but I was like, oh, this is actually quite nice. I don't know. I would buy it again. Yeah. Sweet. Mm -hmm. No. Awesome. Well, until next week, and I don't know, we might be posting something tomorrow concerning um, what happens and kind of, I mean, at the hearing, yeah, at the hearing. Yeah. And um, see where the boys are for now. Um, But yeah, until next time. time. Cheers. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.